welcome to 1867 and all that. Episode 22, Disasters and Democracy. The potato blight changed everything. For several years, there have been stories of a disease wrecking potato harvests in the Americas. Late in 1845, the blight arrived in Ireland, and its devastation would be almost total. That year, the Irish potato farmers lost one-third of their harvest. The next year, 1846, was even worse. They lost three-quarters of the harvest. Now, numbers, ratios, can't convey the horror of what this meant to people in their lives. On this cold, green, North Atlantic island, ruled from a distance by Britain, the potato had, over the previous half-century, become a staple of the poor. Without the potato, the whole diet of a people, often the most vulnerable people, would be ruined. And that's exactly what happened over the next five years. A half-decade of terrible harvests ruined the country, leading to mass starvation. By 1851, about one of every eight Irish would be dead. At least another million Irish fled the famine and their country, emigrating to England, Scotland, Australia, and the Americas. And the Canadas, that sister colony in the British Empire, would see its share of famine migration. The timber ships that hauled Canadian wood to England, ships that so often struggled to find enough goods to make their return journey profitable, in these years, those ships found desperate Irish emigrants, hoping to escape the privations of their homeland, eager to take their chances in the holds of ships, human, timber. The journey was often hellish, and their welcome, if that's what you want to call it, just as difficult. Disease spread easily in the tight conditions on board, scurvy, smallpox, typhus, and cholera. The ships earned their nickname, coffin ships, so great was the death toll. On arriving in British North America, the famine migrants fared little better. Immigration officials wanted to prevent the spread of disease across the colony and prevent overburdening local areas with the cost of charity. And so they kept the migrants in quarantine, most famously, but not only, on Grosse-Ile, the quarantine island in the St. Lawrence just downstream from Quebec City. Thousands died in quarantine, and then thousands more in hospitals. And so, in these years at the end of the 1840s, as British governments enacted the doctrine of free trade, loosening the economic ties of empire, and as the practice and theory of responsible government began finally to take shape, first in Nova Scotia, loosening the political ties of empire, the famine migrants added to the tumult of the times and could seem in British North America like one of the burdens of empire. The whole nature of what it meant to be British North American was thrown into question. With the homeland dumping destitute immigrants upon the colonies, with the end of colonial preferences and the loosening of political ties, what did it even mean to be a British North American? We're back in the Canadas this week. Joseph Howe and the reformers of Nova Scotia have done their work. 
It was their loyal reform arguments, coupled with the changing economic fortunes of the empire, that had finally pushed Downing Street to admit that a purely reform-led political party could take power in a British colony in the Americas. But it was one thing to allow this in loyal Nova Scotia. The Canadas were a whole other matter. The sour taste of rebellion still lingered. So many of the political actors in the 1840s had played a part in that era, many on the reform side supportive of the rebellion itself. Even Louis-Joseph Papineau was back, and William Lyon Mackenzie would be soon too. Would the British be as keen to allow a reform government in the Canadas? And what would they do if that reform government decided to do something as drastic as give cash to former rebels for the losses they suffered during the rebellion? As we'll see, this wasn't a rhetorical question. But first, we need to meet a rather important man, a loyal British servant who would end up being hated by Tories and loved by reformers. This was none other than James Bruce, 8th Lord of Elgin. If you were a reformer looking for optimism in early in 1847, you might have found it in the new Governor General, Lord Elgin. Yes, the reformers were at present at the time out of favour, out of power. The Baldwin-Lafontaine coalition was fraying around the edges, riven with internal dissent, its French-Canadian members being forced to fend off the near-constant blandishments of office from Tories keen to win them over. But in the appointment of Lord Elgin, you might have spotted signs of hope. There was the fact that Elgin had recently married Mary Louisa Lambton, the daughter of none other than Lord Durham himself. Elgin had married into the family of the main British proponent of responsible government. Surely that was a good thing, right? There was also the fact of who Elgin was, what he represented, a conservative of a liberal stripe appointed by a Whig ministry in England that seemed to be edging closer and closer to acknowledging that responsible government was, after all, possible. Elgin was the son of Thomas Bruce, 7th Earl of Elgin, the man who had purchased the famous Elgin's marbles, those antiquities that he rescued from the Parthenon, or stole, depending on whose side you take here, and which have ever since been such a symbol of controversy. The elder Elgin eventually sold the marbles to the British crown, but at a significant loss. And so James Bruce, our Elgin, grew up in Paris in relative, and I, I really only mean only relative, poverty. And so was obliged to take up a career in the diplomatic service to make something of himself. In 1846, Elgin had only recently returned from his first posting as governor in post-abolition Jamaica. It was there that his first wife had died. On coming back to England, he married again, this time to Mary Louisa. His new wife, aside from being Durham's daughter, was also the niece of Lord Grey, the new colonial secretary in the Whig government. And it was these connections, and his Jamaican service, which brought forth Elgin's name as a possible new governor in the Canadas. You'll remember that late in 1846, the British had only just signed a treaty with the Americans resolving the Oregon crisis, 
That made expendable the current governor, Lord Cathcart, who had been so wanted for his military experience. In his place, Elgin would go to the Canadas. He received his appointment late in 1846 and arrived in Montreal at the end of January 1847. Elgin came to the Canadas on the crest of a wave of change, but he came to oversee a government that was still essentially Metcalfe's old government from 1844. It was a Tory government, but with its token representatives from French Canada, Denis Benjamin Viget and Denis Benjamin Papineau. At the center of the government was the eminently reasonable William Draper who, despite ostensibly leading the government, was nonetheless liked by neither of the main factions within the Tories in the Assembly. Although the government had carried on for several years, and had even managed to pass some important legislation, there was always a sense that it existed on sufferance. Of course, not liked by the reformers in the Assembly, but also not much appreciated by any of its ostensible supporters either. Draper had you'll remember, been trying to woo away prominent French Canadians who would agree to govern with him under the principle of the double majority. This had been at the centre of controversy over secret letters that Lafontaine had leaked to the Assembly which had caused such a stir. When Elgin arrived, he was determined to not take sides. He came with the same instructions that the colonial secretary Gray had sent to Harvey of Nova Scotia. These were to concede to responsible government, to govern with the support of the people, and that meant forming an executive that was made up of those who controlled a majority in the assembly. When Elgin arrived, Draper controlled this majority, but it was tenuous. Elgin agreed to try to help Draper bring in a French-Canadian faction, and so Draper once again tried to woo some of the loose fish in Lafontaine's semi-solid party. Letters were sent, meetings were held, wine was drunk, and all of it, in the end, led nowhere. Lafontaine worried that his party would collapse and he did everything in his power to keep those from being wooed from giving in to the blandishments. And probably because Draper's majority seemed in such disarray, so likely not to last, Lafontaine succeeded in holding his reformers together. When a summer session of Parliament opened in June of 1847, it came in the midst of gloom and crisis. Each week, more ships brought the destitute and diseased from Ireland. The papers published lists of the dead each week. And to top it off, an economic depression set in. Prices for timber and grains, the main Canadian exports, plummeted. Anti-Irish resentment surged through the Americas, even if, at the same time, some others raised money for charity to take care of the sick. Draper was, for all purposes, now a prime minister, even though he led a government that had stood against the most radical version of responsible government. The previous governor, Cathcart, had essentially let Draper govern through his own disinterest, and now Elgin let Draper govern on principle. Elgin saw his role as wielding a moral, rather than a direct, influence over domestic affairs. 
Draper was trying in these months to build a different kind of Tory party. He was trying, I would say, to build a political party that naturally represented something like what Lord Sydenham had tried to create, a national coalition of moderates. He brought in more moderate conservatives like the young lawyer John A. Macdonald from Kingston. He also brought in Ogle Gowan, the leader of the Orange Order, who, despite what you might think from the fact that he headed up the Orange Lodge, was actually a voice of reasoned Toryism during these years, wooed by reformers as well to come onto their side. But by the late spring, Draper gave up. He just couldn't do it. The other Tory factions just wouldn't have him. And so, when a spot opened up on the courts of the Queen's bench, he resigned from office and took up a spot in the judiciary. Better to retire to the courts where his judiciousness would of course be welcomed. In his place, and leading the government through the final session was Henry Sherwood, the Tory mayor of Toronto. The final session was largely peremptory. Everyone was waiting for an election that they knew was coming, and come it did late in 1847. Lord Elgin called the election at the beginning of December 1847, with final voting to finish by the middle of January 1848. It was the first election in the Canadas after the British had essentially conceded to the principle of responsible government. Nova Scotia had just held its own elections, and the reformers had been welcomed into office there. What would happen in the Canadas? Late in 1847 was not a good time for a Tory to ask Canadians for their vote. The last year had essentially been an advertisement for all that was wrong with the British connection. There had been the threat of war with the Americans in the Oregon crisis. And then there was the elimination of imperial preference, which had reached a crescendo with the announcement of the end of the Corn Laws in 1846. By the summer of 1847, the Canadas were in full-on economic crisis, and it was very easy to blame the British government trade policies for the bad times. On top of this, the country was awash with Irish famine migrants, bringing disease and desperation to Canadian shores. While many Canadians responded with charity, even this cost them. The Catholic Bishop of Toronto died after tending to the new sick Catholics to come under his ministry. And many others were a lot less charitable. Wild Protestant Catholic brawls rocked British North America that year, especially in New Brunswick, but also amongst the workers on Canada's largest work site, the Welland Canal. The costs of the quarantine station and of dealing with all the fallout from the famine migrants fell, at least initially, on local Canadian ratepayers, even though, as part of the empire, they could not deny entry to others from within the empire. In other words, while loyalism often united Tories with other Canadians, marking off reformers as potentially disloyal, that kind of appeal just wasn't going to work this time. In this election, the call to empire loyalty brought the tang of disappointment. On the other hand, it was a great year for Lafontaine, Baldwin and the reformers. The election was as rowdy as you would expect. In Montreal, a reformer mob seized polling stations and hurled stones at a tavern where Tories were gathering. 
lubricating themselves with booze before heading out to vote. Both sides grabbed pistols and exchanged gunfire. Only troops taking to the streets could calm the situation. Elsewhere, in Trois-Rivières, polls were temporarily closed after a Tory mob beat Liberal voters. But one thing was different. Governor Elgin stayed out of the fray. He was holding firmly to the principle that he would govern alongside the representatives of whichever side earned the trust of the people. When the polls closed towards the end of January and the parties counted up where they stood, the reformers found that they had won a magnificent victory. They took 33 of the 42 seats in Lower Canada, which was perhaps to be expected. But even in Upper Canada, they eked out a majority, winning about 23 or 24 seats. Overall, the reformers, so long as they could hold together, would dominate the new assembly. At first, just like in Nova Scotia, the Tories held out until Parliament actually met. They arranged for Elgin to give his speech early in 1848, but then when it came to voting on the Speaker and then on the speech itself, they lost the votes. Lord Elgin was as good as his word. The Tories were forced to resign and Elgin called on Louis-Hippolyte Lafontaine to form a government. And it would be a government formed only of other reformers, a party government the first real responsible government in the Canadas. Though here, I have to emphasize again that this was only in the Canadas. Nova Scotia beat them to it. And so if you see in some textbooks, and you will see it in some textbooks, that the Baldwin-Lafontaine government was Canada's first responsible government, you can roll your eyes in frustration at central Canadian arrogance. This mistake gets made so many times that it actually showed up in drafts of the federal government's recent citizenship guide. I perhaps shouldn't tell tales out of school, but when I was consulted on the latest version of this document, I kept having to correct this mistake. I'm sure that when the current government does eventually release the new guide, they'll get it right. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will, right? But anyway, we're still back in early 1848, and we now have a responsible government. And surely, this is the end of our story, right? You might think we could stop there. But it's not quite so simple. After their victory at the polls, Lafontaine and Baldwin happily took up Elgin's offer to form a government. Still, the British were nervous about allowing the reformers to govern. They weren't certain what they were getting themselves into. And especially as the months passed in 1848, they only became more nervous. Across Europe, liberal revolutions broke out everywhere, first in Sicily, and then, in February, a revolutionary movement overthrew the monarchy and created a second republic in France. From there, absolutist monarchies found themselves on the defensive. The situation in Britain was less dire, but even there, the Chartist movement, which demanded parliamentary and democratic reforms, surged. And more threateningly, a revolutionary movement in Ireland increasingly turned to radical demands to repeal that island's union with Britain. 1848 was a year of revolution. 
So what would happen in the Canadas when a group of reformers, many of whom had been sympathetic to the similarly liberal and republican rebellion of a decade ago, now took power? Was this just the first step on the way to revolution here too? Ironically, LaFontaine was worried about the same thing. In 1848, he found his own leadership challenged by one of those Republican revolutionaries who thought that what the Canadas had just won, responsible government, didn't go far enough. This was Louis-Joseph Papineau. When we last saw Papineau, he had returned from exile, but had decided to stay out of politics. Yet in 1847, he opted to put himself forward for a seat in the assembly. And in 1848, Papineau was himself inspired by events in Europe, especially in Ireland. He had always thought of French Canada's position as akin to the Irish. Now he hoped that the Irish would break free of England and perhaps Canada could do so too. Around Papineau, a new splinter group of young liberals had grown up, centered around a paper called L'Avenir, the future. These liberals weren't content with LaFontaine's moderate defense of responsible government and parliamentary supremacy. The whole thing smacked too much of Britain and the do domination of old. They yearned for a future free of colonial subjugation. And all through 1848, they rallied around Papineau, denouncing the new government as not sufficiently radical. LaFontaine himself moved cautiously at first, the government, which everyone was now calling his government, contained four members on its executive who came from the Legislative Council, not even the Assembly. And in the first session, they moved slowly, so slowly that the Tories mocked them for inaction. The first bill of the new session, this new responsible government that reformers had been promising for so long, that they extolled as the height of democratic fulfillment, dealt with, of all things, the regulation of butter. Yes, it was a butter bill. But Lafontaine also moved to fend off criticism from Papineau. Friendly journalists took turns explaining how and why Papineau was wrong. And then later in the year, they turned personal. Those who had taken part in events in 1837, in that year of rebellion, began talking and writing about their experiences at the time. And he began to wonder publicly where Papineau had been in the greatest moments of crisis. This father of the nation, the great speaker of the old assembly and leader of the nation. Where had he been during the great battles at Saint-Denis and Saint-Charles? You'll remember that in fact Papineau's whereabouts had long been a mystery. Now, Wolfred Nelson, the victor of Saint-Denis, who sat in the assembly and supported LaFontaine, wrote that Papineau had fled in cowardice. And he went on to suggest that Papineau couldn't be lecturing LaFontaine, or anyone really, about who stood up for French Canada. Papineau had a defense. He said that Wolfred Nelson himself had told Papineau to clear out, to avoid conflict so as to be able to be the political leader. But it didn't matter. The accusations of cowardice kept coming. And, by the way, this was the same time when a journalist accused Georges-Étienne Cartier of cowardice, too, for his actions at Saint-Denis. Remember, this was the incident with which I began this whole series in Episode 1. 
talking about the duel fought to defend his honor in 1848. Well, the accusations against Carche came from someone taking Papineau's side, trying to spread the accusations of cowardice around. The whole thing was a mess. When the second session of Parliament opened in early 1849, Papineau rose in his seat to attack the government. Even though Lord Elgin had opened up the session of Parliament by delivering his address in both French and English, confirming that the ban on French and public business was now well and truly over. Even though Lafontaine's government seemed to deliver on the promise of the inclusion of French Canada within this new system of responsible government, Papineau declared that it wasn't enough. And yet, Papineau by this point had suffered significantly. His reputation wasn't what it once had been. Lafontaine rose in his seat to defend himself and his government and the speech from the throne passed with wide support. Papineau lost, and Lafontaine now stood out clearly as the parliamentary leader of French Canada. And it was this fact, this newly confident position, this new symbol of the coming to power of a reformed government with wide support from French Canada, that gave him the confidence to read the first draft of a bill that would rock Canadian politics all that year. If 1848 had been a year of revolution in Europe, it was 1849 that shook Canada. And while in Europe it was liberals who demanded reforms and constitutions in absolutist Europe, in Canada it was Tories who decried what they saw as the treasonous actions of their own liberal government. For in 1849, Lafontaine proposed the first reading of the Rebellion Losses Bill. It's 1849, but we're back where we began with the rebellions, and everything and nothing has changed. Thanks so much for listening this week. We're almost there, almost at the end of season one. Next week, the Canadas erupt in chaos over this thing called the Rebellion Losses Bill and we'll be there to follow our story through to its conclusion. If you like what you're hearing, then please do subscribe if you haven't already. Season one is almost over, but if you subscribe, then you'll automatically get updates when season two returns next year. And please do tell a friend. There are some great Canadian history podcasts out there, uh, quite a few in fact, but as far as I know, this is the only serialized continuous narrative. Perhaps someone you know might enjoy it too. As usual, 1867 and all that is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett. The sound engineering is by Rob Viscardis at Paradigm Pictures, and the whole thing is generously supported by Trent Online at Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.